clap for life change here. Some people were bashful at the beginning of that. Just wanting to know, we rejoice in that. God's changing lives. People trust Christ. That's the first step. And then they continue to become more and more like him, experience more and more of the abundant life that he has given us. And we celebrate that. And so hopefully you evaluate even where you're at on that when you see life change. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, if not, that is our desire for you, number one today, above all else. And if you know Jesus, that you'd love him more and walk more closely with him as a result of our time together. And we're going to open up his word in just a moment, but just a few things uh, to let you know. One, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Thanks so much for being here, and uh, we love it that you come. And maybe today's your first time here, or maybe you've been here for a few weeks now. If you've never filled out the connection cards in your worship program, I just want to ask you to fill that out, if you wouldn't mind. If you fill that out, take it out to the first-time guest kiosk, then we've got a gift to give you, and we also are going to make a donation to impact somebody else's life as a result of you filling that card out. So if you'd please fill that out, even right now, I'll give a couple other announcements. Uh, that would be wonderful and a blessing to us. We're grateful that you're here. We've prayed for you, prepared for you. Um, we've planned to, to be able to host you and to love you well, and we'd love to hear how you heard about us and uh, why it is that you came and which service you attended, 9 o'clock, 1030, and any other information you'd like us to know. You can also use those cards for a connection card, um, and if you want to be baptized, if you want to join the church, if you trusted Christ, which last week we had a couple people trust Christ, and checked it on the card. We rejoice in that, but I want to make everybody aware, just as a culture in our church, we have a response team after the service. It'll come down here. It'll be on both sides. Whether I mention them or not, there'll be some folks that'll be down here. They've got yellow tags on, uh, little name tags they wear around their neck. And we want you to come down and pray with them. If you've got a burden you want to pray about, you've got something you want to talk about, maybe you have a big decision that's coming up that you need to make, or if you make a decision for Christ in any form or fashion in the service. And last week, we had some people trust Christ. We didn't get to connect with them. We've got a gift we want to give you. If that was you last week, we've got a Bible that we'd love to give you, some information just to help you grow in that relationship with Jesus. And if you have any questions, we'd love to be able to help in any way that we can with some of those questions. So our response team is here. This is a regular part. When you're leaving the service, you can slide down, talk to them. That is why they're here. They would love to pray with you, pray for you, and answer any questions that they're able to answer. So whether I mention them or not on Sunday, they'll be here. Also, if you were here last week, you know it was a fifth Sunday. And on fifth Sundays this year, we're doing a special offering, a dollar offering, and it goes to something different every time. And the last time I went to uh, rescue or uh, relief for refugees, lost the word there, uh, refugee relief. And there's an insert in your worship program about how we're going to continue with some of that. But to give you an update of what happened last week, in addition to our regular tithes and offerings we put in the black boxes or we give online, we had some suitcases out and people, we asked them to drop a dollar bill in there on their way out. And our goal was that everybody that attended would drop a one dollar bill in there. I know some people wrestled, like I, all I have is a five. Uh, you're not going to get in trouble if you drop a five in there. But what we ended up having, we had more money given than we actually had people in attendance. We had 900 $183.51 given towards uh, refugee relief. And so we praise God for that. Yeah, you can clap for that too. It's all right. You be bold. It doesn't matter. You can stand up if you need to. Um, so we're excited about that. You saw even as we were preparing for that, we've got a family in our church that came over here because they were under persecution didn't experience the freedoms that we have in worshiping Jesus Christ. And so they came to this country. People are coming to the Raleigh-Durham area on a regular basis. We want to love them and welcome them well and just show them the love of Christ. Some of them believers. Some of them have yet to trust Christ as their Savior. And we want them to see the love of Jesus Christ. We continue to desire to see this place become really a city on a hill. We really think when the scriptures talk about that, that is a possibility. And we want that to be true of the Raleigh-Durham area. And so that's why we want to continue to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. And we've been doing this series here called uh, New Beginnings. We're going to wrap that up today. I want to let you know that next week 
we're going to have a special announcement. So if you're thinking about skipping church, don't. <laughs> I, a pastor would always say that, right? But don't do it next week, okay? If you're thinking about skipping next week, it's going to be a significant time in the life of our church. can't tell you what it is now, but it'll tell you next week what the announcement is. You're going to want to be here for that. And then also we're going to begin a new series. It's going to start on Mother's Day. Next week is Mother's Day, heads up. And then we're going to end it on Father's Day. And it's going to be on relationships. We're going to talk about moms. We're going to talk about dads. And then we're also going to talk about singles. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about different folks in relationships. And the series is called Relate. And so you're invited to be a part of that. You're welcome to invite anybody that you're in relationship with to come and be a part of the relationship series as well. But I'm going to wrap up today the New Beginning series. And we're going to open up God's Word. But will you pray with me before we do that? Father God, thank you so much that you meet with us, that you care about us, that you walk among us, that you give us a light. Father, will you make that light shine brighter as a result of our meeting together today? We thank you for your special presence that you give when we gather together corporately, when we sing together. We thank you so much that you allow us to have a church where we can worship freely. We thank you for the church that we know that you love as your bride, as you tell us in Ephesians chapter 5. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that you bought the church, that you bought us. Father, I pray if there's any in here that haven't been purchased by your blood yet, that they would surrender their lives to your son, Jesus, as Savior. And I pray for those of us who know you, that we would walk closer with you as a result of our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we all have expectations, regardless of what area of life we're talking about, whether it's your personal life, you think about your birthday, you have expectations. Certain people will remember your birthday, don't you? Whether it's your Facebook friends and it's right there in front of their face so they don't tell you happy birthday, what jerks are they? Or whether it's somebody that you work with, you've dropped hints all week, <laughs> it would be a special day on Thursday, I would love cake, you know, whatever it is that you say. You have expectations for those things. You have expectations when you go on vacation. We're coming into vacation season. A lot of people like to go to the beach. You've probably got expectations for what the place you'll stay will be like. You've got expectations for what food will be like, expectations for what the sand will be like, expectations for what your tan will be like. Some of you may even dream about making a sandcastle. You may have expectations that you'll make a sandcastle look something like this. And then you'll make one, and it might look more like this. <laughs> and sometimes you don't want to have expectations because you don't want to be disappointed. But the reality is we all have expectations, even on simple things like daily life stuff. You go through the drive-thru. Have you ever seen the pictures they give you at the drive-thru? They'll pop up pictures of sandwiches that look like this. Do you ever open your sandwich? It looks more like this. See that Whopper? That's the Whopper I get every time. Mustard, ketchup, cheese, all smeared around the paper. I didn't get that thing. I don't know what that thing was made of. The tacos don't have any meat in it. Can I get some meat with my taco? The, the Big Mac there, that is our worship pastor's favorite sandwich. All the food selection that we have in Briar Creek, and that is his favorite sandwich. I need to rebuke that man. But anyway, we're, this thing, they've got all these expectations we have in life, but a lot of times reality doesn't meet our expectations. So what many of us want to do is then lower our expectations. Some of you have expectations for relationships. So in the first service, so one of the dates I took my wife on, when we first started dating, I had it planned out to give her a kiss. <laughs> it was our first kiss. How lame am I that I planned out our first kiss, right? And my plan was I was going to take her to this really nice restaurant, this German village. We were going to walk around the streets, and afterwards, we were going to get on a horse and carriage, and I was going to lay one on her. It was going to be sweet. It was going to be awesome. And uh, what happened was I was very nervous about this situation. And so we went to the meal, and we're eating at this nice restaurant. I excused myself, went to the restroom, puked all over the place. <laughs> I did not bring a toothbrush, so now I've got puke breath. So that's not going to work for our first kiss. I'm pretty confident that her dad was praying a spirit of puke breath on me before we went on that date. <laughs> And you can be confident I'll be praying that for your boys if they try to take my girls out. But, but I didn't end up getting to kiss her at that moment. Didn't quite live up to my expectations in there. And we've got expectations for everything, whether it's a date you go on, a vacation you have, your birthday. And let's talk about the most obvious one this morning, church. You had expectations for church today. Whether you've been here before or not, you have expectations. 
And there might be simple expectations like that you can find a parking spot or that the greeter will be friendly. Uh, maybe you have expectations for donuts and coffee. Maybe you didn't expect donuts and coffee, and so we're already ahead of your expectations. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> uh, you probably had expectations for music. Maybe you thought we'd have fog because we are in a theater. Maybe you thought we'd have less of something because we're in a theater. Or maybe you have expectations for what I'm about to say things that we're about to do, maybe certain elements that will be part of the service because of your background or experiences prior or because of things that you've just thought up or seen on TV or whatever it is, you've got expectations for church. We've been doing this series called New Beginnings. We've been talking about a lot of new things. Today we're going to talk about new expectations. And what some of us need to do is take the real expectations we have, so at least be conscious of them, of what church is, and then look at what the New Testament says and see what we should expect from church. And for many of us, that means we're going to have to raise our expectations we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today, looking at verse 32. If you don't have a Bible, we give them out for free over here on the desk where the uh, worship programs are at. If you trust Christ, we've got Bibles that we'd love to give you as well. And we're going to put verses up on the screen, but you can always see the verses around what's happening here when you bring your own Bible. And Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. It's a continuation of this series we've been doing called New Beginnings. We started in Luke chapter 24 on Easter Sunday, and we were talking about the ultimate new beginning. It's when you begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's when you come to the realization that because of our sin problem, we all have one. The Bible says for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Because of your sin problem, because of my sin problem, we have a need for a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. There is no other name on earth given to men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And when we come to him, he gives us a new beginning, a new life. We're a new creation. We're forgiven of those sins. We're cleansed. There's no condemnation for us. The guilt is gone. We get a second chance, a do-over, a fresh start in life. But you've got to come to Jesus Christ. And when you do, what happens is many times we celebrate and we're excited about that. And we celebrate those who've come to Christ during this series. But the question many people ask then is, now what? And what happened was you had to realize that you were headed in a way that seemed right to you. And many people, it was even that they thought they were doing the very thing God wanted. They were headed in a way that seemed right to them, but in the end it leads to death. And so they stopped and they turned, they repented. And now they're headed in a new direction we saw in Acts chapter 1. Because Acts chapter 1 is really a continuation of the gospel of Luke. And on that new direction you receive a new mission. And we have a mission, the reason why each one of us exists is to connect people to Jesus for life change, or to be his witnesses, witnesses of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or to preach the gospel, the good news to all of creation, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, John chapter 20, verse 21, the Father has sent us, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we're on a commission, it's our mission that we live out. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in a new direction, living on a new mission, and part of the result of that is you have a new kind of community, and we saw that in Acts chapter 2. And we saw last week in a new kind of courage that comes by the very power of the Holy Spirit living within us to go above and beyond what our physical ability is, what our emotional ability is, anything we could do on our own. We've got a supernatural power that gives us a new kind of courage. And today as we look at where this church stands in Acts chapter 4, we see some new expectations that many of us should have for church. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers, and you can underline that, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. You can underline that. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What we have here in Acts chapter 4 is really a summary of where the church is at at this stage. Because in Acts chapter 2, we saw that the favor was on them, everybody was in awe, and it was kind of like a fairy tale. 
But then in Acts chapter 4, we saw now there's persecution, now there's difficulties, the numbers are increasing, there's even battles within the church that will begin to take place. So where are they at now that it's not so fairy tale and it's more of a reality of where church is at? And what you'll see is you can see expectations, and I believe we see at least three characteristics or expectations we should have of the church in this passage. And you can study through the New Testament and you see these things repeated, whether you read the book of Corinthians, whether you read the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, to the church in Galatia, to the Roman believers, or you can read the pastoral epistles to the pastor Timothy or to the pastor Titus, talking about these churches and you see these common themes of things you should expect in a church. And what you won't find is anything about music. I promise you, unless you know of a verse I haven't seen yet, there's nothing about coffee and donuts. <laughs> and it won't really talk about parking places either. But it always talks about this one thing, unity. You should expect, when you look for a church, you should expect a community of unity. You should always expect a community of unity. Here's the problem. If you expect that, your reality may not be that. And so what we want to do is we want to change our expectation because many times our experiences, that hasn't been our reality. Because if we're real candid... In our culture, churches are oftentimes known for disunity, not unity, for the arguments and things that they fight over. So in first service, the, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in church. I was saved as a high school senior and went to a youth rally. I was actually a leader there. It was for junior high students. And if you've ever been to a junior high rally, they try and hype you up. You know, they start talking to you back and forth. And part of it's hollering, whatever is supposed to happen there. Hollering is a key part. And so they were trying to get the audience to holler back and forth. And the MC said, is there anybody here from Second Baptist? And I laughed out loud. I thought, there's no church name. <laughs> who would name their church Second Baptist? Like, we got there second? Like, who does that? I'd heard of First Baptist before. And I was thinking, what happened there? Was it that they planted a church, they weren't very creative with the title? Or, or was it divisiveness? And many times what happened there was actually racial divisiveness that took place with Second Baptist Church. It's a picture of disunity. And some of you have heard of silly ones. Maybe you've grown up in churches that have split before. I sent a thing to Jason this week, he, our shepherding pastor. He didn't even believe me. He said he had to read the story himself about a church that actually split over fried chicken. <laughs> and what happened was there was a picnic, and the pastor said something about some fried chicken, and a bunch of families got mad, and they left. And what was really interesting was he didn't say anything bad about the fried chicken. He picked up some fried chicken and said it was the best fried chicken he had ever eaten, and apparently there was some battle between two families, and he picked the wrong family, and a bunch of people left the church. If you're the pastor, you're like, what in the world happened? We're ordering KFC for everything we do, you know? But people, they argue about this stuff, and they argue about silly stuff. And we get divisive about dumb things. And you can look at even the most jacked-up church in the whole New Testament. It's a Corinthian church. They got Jerry Springer stuff happening. You read the book, I'm telling you. This is messed up. Look at what Paul says to them. People following Paul, people following Apollos. There's division there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You say, yeah, but that doesn't really happen. Well, they really had it here in this Jerusalem church. And remember, these are real people. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the very first part of the verse. All, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And now think about that for a moment. Because we know this is not a small group of people that are gathered together that all have the same interests, the same hobbies, uh, you know, they grew up in the same family. It's not that. Because we know how this church started in Acts chapter 2. Remember, Peter stands up and he begins to preach the day of Pentecost, and the other 12 disciples, they're preaching, and they're preaching in languages, even though they're all from Galilee, they're preaching in languages from all over the world that they've never been trained in speaking. The Spirit has come upon them supernaturally. They begin to speak, and then the people ask, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 8, they ask this, 
How is it then that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then they list out where all these people are from. Look at it. Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. I'm not going to try those first two. Egypt, other parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Jews, converse to Judaism. So you got Romans, you got Jews, you got Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And so you have people there from incredibly diverse backgrounds. You've got people that are the Medes and the Persians. You've got the Romans and the Jews. You've got Cretans. You've got all kinds of people there. They don't even speak the same language. And that day, 3,000 of them realized they were headed in their own direction. Even some of them that thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. And they stopped. They repented. And they turned to Christ. And they made up the early church, those 3,000. We know by Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, there are 5,000, about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So we've got thousands of people here that are being talked about in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And it says, all the believers were united. But that doesn't mean they were all the same. You've got incredible diversity. You've got racial diversity. You've got socioeconomic diversity. You've got cultural diversity. You've got hobbies that they have differences in. They like different sports. There's all kinds of different stuff about these people, but they're united. How is that? We've got a diverse body here in the Briar Creek area and at this church. There are a lot of different folks that illustrate to you. I just want to, I want to ask you a question, and you don't raise your hand so much. I can't see a lot of hands because of the light, uh, but you can make some noise back to me. It's okay to respond. I'm going to ask you a question. When we do membership lunches, I've asked a question lots of times. We, I remember one time doing a membership lunch. We had about 25, 30 people together, and I said, how many of you are from Raleigh? And one person raised their hand, and then there were people from all over the place. And we get people from, we've had Johannesburg, Africa. We've had people from Europe, Australia, all over the place. And so I just want to know how many of you are from somewhere other than Raleigh and how many of you are from Raleigh? How many people here from somewhere other than Raleigh? Amen. Raise your hand. Yay. Oh, you're excited about being from somewhere else. All right. Uh, how many people are from Raleigh? Ooh, it is a smaller group. So we've got a little bit of diversity there. Continue to play this game for just a moment. I'm going to assume that all of you like ice cream. Okay, good assumption. Good assumption. A couple, couple responses. And I'm going to ask you, you've got to pick between two flavors. You had to pick between vanilla and chocolate. How many of you would pick vanilla ice cream? How many people? All right, I'm a purist. I pick vanilla ice cream. I see that hand. I'm a pastor. I got it. All right, and then how many of you will pick chocolate ice cream? All right. I see. I think some people clap for both. Um, Jason, uh, uh, how, many people, how many people are mad at me because I didn't pick your flavor? All right, we got unite. You've got unity, except for Judy. You'll be kicked out of the church later. Anyway, the uh, how many of you here? Some of different personality types. How many of you here are night owls versus morning people? How many morning people do we have here tonight, today? How many night owls? All right, all right. Second service. I understand why. All right. How many? If you come here, if you come to the Raleigh Durham area and you decide to relocate here, you live here, whatever it is, you grew up here, it doesn't matter. You have to pick one of three teams, okay? Now, some of you, I understand. There's no picking UCLA, there's no picking Florida State right now. You've got to pick one of the three UNC, NC State, or Duke. How many Duke fans do we have here? All right, a couple. A couple Duke fans. All right. How many UNC fans do we have here? All right. NC State? All right. Rowdy and proud. We're glad you're here. Thank you so much. We've got diversity in our church. You've got different preferences and sleep patterns. You've got different foods that you like. In fact, we've got, and we live in an incredibly diverse racial area, incredibly diverse backgrounds, incredibly diverse preferences, incredibly diverse socioeconomic statuses. 
We've got all kinds of different religious backgrounds. If I were to ask you, we've got people that come with no religious background whatsoever. They don't even have any idea what to expect. We have people, you know, come into the church here with nothing, no preconceived idea. They still have expectations, but no preconceived ideas of what will happen in the service. Other people come from high church. Other people come from incredibly contemporary church. Some people come from cults. So how in the world could we ever have unity? Let me tell you something. Diversity is not the enemy of unity. Diversity is not the enemy of unity. We had an incredibly diverse group of people here. Forget the 5,000 plus women and children and all the people that were there. Just think about the 12 men that led the church. We know what they were like. A lot of times we think about them as the disciples. They're just kind of hunky-dory, a bunch of fishermen following Jesus around. They weren't all fishermen. Uh, There's one guy, his name is Matthew. He was originally called Levi. He's a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors because they steal money from people. They are allowed to collect taxes. They also pad their pockets, and that's how they make money for themselves, by collecting more than they're supposed to. You know who they steal money from? One of the groups is fishermen. So what do you think it was like for Matthew and Peter to lead the church together? One guy had ripped the other guy off before. So what happens here? How in the world is it possible for there to be one in heart and one in mind? Well, it says they were one in heart. What is our heart? It's the essence of who we are. You read the scriptures. We're told to guard it above all else. It is the wellspring. Everything else flows out of that. It's the wellspring of life. What are we commanded to do? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. They had a love for God that superseded any of their differences. That's what united them. And then you see when we love God, see the second greatest commandment is that we love our neighbors ourselves. John tells us in 1 John that when we love God, we will love our neighbors. And you see in this passage of Scripture, the first part of verse 32, that they loved God. They were one in heart and mind. The second part, and they cared for one another. But they weren't just one in heart. They were also one in mind. And we know that we have a common purpose as followers of Jesus Christ. We talked a lot about it in this series. It's our mission that we're on. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They were united in focus. They were united in mind. And it was to be God's witnesses throughout the world to spread the love of Jesus Christ to lost people that have yet to step into that new beginning, the people that don't know what it's like to be free from condemnation, free from guilt, to experience the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give. And so they were so focused on what really mattered, the superficial stuff wasn't important. Fried chicken, sleep patterns, sports teams. It's a common love for God that brought unity in the community, and it expressed itself in a love for one another and a common love for the mission that we're on, the reason why we exist, to reach people for Jesus Christ that have yet to step across that line of faith. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, John chapter 20, verse 21, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 49, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the mission brought them together. The love brought them together. They were one in heart and they were one in mind. And you should expect that when you look for a church to join. You should expect a community of unity when you join a church. United in their love for God. United in their love for one another and their love for a lost world. That's what you should expect when you join a church. Well, some people, the idea of even joining a church is kind of a foreign concept. Like they, they even say things like, does membership even in the Bible? And the membership is explicitly throughout the scriptures. You see it really or implicitly implied multiple times. You'll never see a verse that says, if you're a Christian in the New Testament, join this, you know, First Baptist or Second Baptist or whatever church, Southbridge, whatever church you want to fill in the blank with there. But you see the church, which God loves, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, it's his bride. He bought it. And when Paul's talking to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, He bought the church with his blood. He loves the church. And Jesus, when he speaks about it before the church even exists, in Matthew chapter 18, he implies that you become a member of it. 
Matthew chapter 18, if you've never read it, is the passage on church discipline. And what ends up getting talked about there is if somebody sins against you, you go to them and you talk to them about it. That's what you would do if you love people. You think about it, if a doctor knew that someone had cancer, he doesn't love them by not telling them that they have a problem. He helps them with what's going on. And so you tell somebody when they have sin in their lives. And if they don't listen, then you bring some more people to talk to them, another witness at least. And then if they still won't listen, then you go to the elders of the church, the leadership, spiritual authorities in the church, and you come to that person. If they still don't listen, then you kick them out of the church. And the question becomes, how can you get kicked out of something you were never part of? <laughs> it's implicit in the passage that membership is there. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a situation, it's the Jerry Springer stuff I was referring to in Corinthians, where there's a guy who's shacking up with his dad's, we don't know if it's his stepmom or his mom, but his dad's wife. And then people in the name of tolerance are acting like, well, it's cute, and we're okay with it, and that's fine. And then Paul tells the Corinthians, no, you judge those who are inside the church. You don't judge those who are outside the church. You let God do that. But you're so serious about your mission and your love for him that you do judge those who are inside the church. Well, how can you do that unless you know who's in and who's out? You read in Acts chapter 5, in the very passage that we're looking at today, right after this, in Acts chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, they're continuing to meet together. But remember, there's some persecution there. People are still amazed at what's happening and the power of the testimony of the apostles as they talk about and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ as they do miracles. They're meeting in Solomon's colonnade in Acts chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. But some people were afraid to join them. What are they afraid to join? It's the church in Jerusalem. They joined the church in Jerusalem. And so you see membership throughout the New Testament. And if you want to see more of it, I put some stuff on my blog. Uh, you can go check it out. More verses about membership in the New Testament, why someone should become a member. Here's the problem, though. Many people, when they think about membership of a church, they think about membership like at a country club or membership at like Sam's Warehouse or BJ's or some shopping membership that you have. And essentially what happens with those memberships is you pay, you stay. If you pay you get to reap the benefits of that organization, whether it's facilities at a country club, whether it's a discount at a shopping place, whatever it is. And here's the thing with church. You don't have to pay, and you still get to stay. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? We don't have any dues, and you can still take your kids to the children's ministry. You can still come listen to the teaching, sing the songs. You could be at a community group. You can even serve in many ways. And then people think, well, why would I ever need to become a member? And so what I tell people a lot of times when we do our membership lunches, I'll say to people, it's like when you come over to my house when you first visit the church. You can be a guest at the house, and I will take care of you. I'll take your coat. I will get you a Coke out of the refrigerator. You, we'll watch whatever game you want to watch. And you come over, and we'll talk about what you want to talk about, and we're there to serve you as a family. But when you become a member, it's like you become part of the family. And so when you come to church, we'll park your car for you. We'll uh, make sure your kids are taken care of. We'll do whatever we need to do to make you feel welcome. We'll get the drink for you. We'll carry you to your seat if you'd like us to. <laughs> Please tell us ahead of time. But we'll do whatever you need. We want you to come, be blessed. You can be a consumer Christian. You can be a consumer non-Christian. Whatever you want to do, you just come and consume, and we'll take care of it. We'll serve you. But when you become a member, it's like you become part of the family. Now, when my family comes over my house, I'm still talking about what they want to. It depends on what game's on, whether I'll change the channel or not, and who's asking. And uh, you can get a Coke out of the fridge yourself. And, but we'll feed you, and we'll take care of you. We love you. Um, but we expect you to take the garbage out. You know, you contribute in some way. And so when you come to church and you join the church, you become a member. We want you to move from being a consumer to a contributor. You're now part of the family. And so we serve together. We work together. There's no free meals here. Now, you might listen to that and think, man, I like the idea of being a consumer. I'll be a guest at your house a whole lot faster than I'll be a family member. Why don't I want to do that? Well, if you're a guest at my house, I'll get you a Coke out of the refrigerator. If you're a family member, I'll lay my life down for you. 
there's a different level of commitment. There's a different level of commitment. I don't even know, I don't know much about you when you're a guest in my house, when you're my family member, you are blood, or at least through covenant, you're part of the family. And so therefore, I lay my life down for you. Other people, I don't even hardly know you. And the same is true with guests versus someone who would publicly identify with the body of Christ. Now we know we're brothers and sisters through the blood of Christ or through covenant and commitment with one another. And we're devoted to one another as we're commanded to be Romans chapter 12, verse 10. As we see the example of in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to, committed to, not fellowship of hanging out with each other, to the, definite article, the fellowship with one another. And so we're living out New Testament church, and that's what we want to do. And some people will say, well, I'm committed. I mean, I give money, and I serve, and I do this stuff, but I just don't want to, like, commit. So it's kind of like saying, well, we're dating, and we live together, and we're shacking up with each other. We don't want to mess it up with the vows, like the promise before God. In other words, we want the benefits, but we just don't want to make the commitment. I'm committed, but I'm not committed. That's not an option for a New Testament Christian that walks according to the plan that God has for them. It's that you be part of a New Testament church. If not this one, there's a bunch of good ones in our city. Providence Baptist Church, you go to Hope Community Church, Vintage 21, Fellowship, Raleigh, Summit Church right around the corner here. Lots of churches for you to be a part of, but if you're a New Testament believer, you've trusted Christ, you need to be part of a church. A church that's a community of unity. Unified in a love for God. It's expressed in a love for one another. It's what you should look for when you come to a church and a love and a passion for lost people. But not just a community of unity. That's verse 32. Look at verse 33, a community of grace. Verse 32 says that they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But then verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify, which is really amazing if you were here last week. And remember, they stood before the Supreme Court of their day, the Sanhedrin, and they were told, don't ever talk about that name. They continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They got incredible courage. And look at what it says. And much grace was upon them, not just the apostles, upon them all. Mega grace, extravagant grace, much grace was upon these people, so much so that it was evident to those who would watch. And so what does that look like? Well, try and imagine what it looked like for them. Over 5,000 believers, who makes up that 5,000? We know who makes up the 12, but who makes up the 5,000? Do you ever wonder that kind of stuff when you read the scriptures? There's a mega church here, and they're experiencing mega grace. Now, why would there be mega grace happening in these lives? And I start to wonder to myself, who are these people? And you think about all the people that Jesus came into contact with. Are some of those people now part of this church? There's one guy that I'm pretty confident, I can't know for sure, but I'm pretty confident was a part of this church in Jerusalem. You see him at the end of the Gospel of Mark. He was a centurion, which is a Roman soldier. He stood guard at the cross. He wasn't on Jesus' side at that moment. And after Jesus dies, and here's a guy who's a Roman soldier. He's seen a lot of people die. Look at what he says. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And I wonder if on the day when Peter, or the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, stood up and he started to preach, this Jesus whom God set apart, and you know it because of his miracles, you killed him. If that centurion was in the crowd that day. And he thought to himself, you're not kidding. Yeah, I'm guilty of killing him. He literally did. He said, but God raised him from the dead. And maybe he was one of the people that cried out, then what do we do? And Peter says, you're headed in a way that seems right to you. You repent, you stop, and you turn. 
You turn to him, and he gives you a second chance, and he gives you new life. And if now that centurion is one of the people that's a new creation, that's experiencing new life, that the old is gone, that new has come, that he's been washed clean. And so when you see him, he's a living evidence of much grace upon him. I wonder who else is there. You see some of the people that Jesus comes into contact with in the New Testament. What about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? She's brought before Jesus, and she has to stand there humbled. She was caught in the very act of adultery. And there's all these men, these religious guys that are ready to throw stones. And then Jesus says that famous line, he's without sin, you throw the first stone. And he just looks away. And they all leave. And she's still there. And he says, you go and sin no more. And then we don't hear from her. You ever wonder what happens to these people? I wonder if what happened to her is what happened to so many people that sincerely make a decision. They'll come forward, they'll raise their hand, they'll come pray with a response team member, and I'm going to turn from this sin. And they're serious about it. They'll come to celebrate recovery. I'm going to quit this addiction. I'm done. And then they don't get surrounded with other believers. They don't get surrounded with people that will walk with them and carry them through these burdens. And they go back into what they knew before. I wonder if she went back. And then she hears Peter preach. She realizes, but even I can have a second chance. And she receives the grace. I wonder if Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these elite leaders that we know are followers of Jesus, if they're part of this 5,000, this church. You've got people from all walks of life that when you look at them, you see they get it. They understand grace. We should expect a community of grace in a church. And so what does that look like now, here, in this place? Does it just look like we have a lot of people that have a lot of sin? And then we're cool with it. Like, look at the people I hang out with. I hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and so I'm a very gracious person. (laughs) Do you realize how that's actually sinful? It's self-centered. It's look at me because I'm so gracious. (laughs) Pride, this is Satan's problem, by the way, uh, is a big deal. And that's not what grace is. It's not that we just have a bunch of sinful friends, or we used to be sinful, and now we're not, and so here's grace. That's not grace. Grace isn't just being nice. Sometimes we think grace is just that we're friendly people. It's more than niceness. Grace doesn't mean that we ignore sin. Sometimes people think that's what grace is, that somebody has a sin problem, and we just choose not to talk about it. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where then Paul rebukes that church. He says, you don't care about the purity and the unity of the bride? You've got to deal with this stuff. You don't care about that person if you won't confront their sin. You know that God, he is grace by his essence. He is righteous and just and wrathful. He's a God that's a judge. But by grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be given a gift that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. It's you receive what you don't deserve. The wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. The gift of God, that's grace, is life. So we deserve death, we get life. But he doesn't ignore sin, he dies for it. He doesn't ignore sin, he punishes it doesn't ignore sin. He paid for it through his son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. It doesn't mean ignoring. Like we see in Acts chapter 5, if you read on a little bit more on your own, what you'll see is in this community of much grace, there was internal battle that took place too. We've seen outside persecution that took place from the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. There were people that were believers in the body too, Ananias and Sapphira. Because of deception and hypocrisy in their own heart, they wanted to be thought of as more spiritual than they actually were. They did an incredible thing. They gave a bunch of money to the church, but they lied and they said that they gave all of the money that they made from a sale to the church. And God struck them down dead in that moment. Now, we don't know if they died of shock because they got found out. We don't know if they died of a heart attack, but we do know that God was judging them and that fear seized all those who were there because he takes sin seriously. So grace doesn't just mean ignoring sin because God didn't ignore it. And he is, by his essence, gracious. So what is grace? And what would it look like for us to be a community of grace? Grace can only happen when we come to grips with the weight of our own sin. 
You don't even need a savior until you come to grips with your own sinfulness. And when you come to grips with your own sinfulness, you realize your need for a savior and that God would give one. Now you can come to grips with the amazingness of his grace. See, grace means you come to grips with the weight of your sin that was actually upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and what it meant and how it actually separated you from the living God who created you and designed you and loves you. But because of our sin, we've been separated from him. And when you come to grips with the weight of what that is and what that truly means, then you can be a community of grace. So it's not about other people's sins and how sinful they are and that you used to hang out with them. It's not about just being friendly, and it's certainly not about ignoring their sin because how loving would that be for someone to have a disease, you know it, and not tell them? It's gracious when you come to grips with the weight of your own sin, and that's what a community of grace will demonstrate. An awareness of their own sinfulness, not a self-righteousness. An awareness of the weight of their own sin and the amazingness of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a community of grace. And that's what this community was. And no wonder when you consider who made it up. Their leader was a traitor. Peter, the face man for the church. He knew he was what we oftentimes consider the worst sin, a betrayer. And then you've got centurions, women caught in adultery, religious guys that everybody else thinks have it all together, but they know their own hearts. There was much grace. You should expect a community of unity. You should expect a community of grace. And you should expect a community of care. Look throughout this passage. It just seeps care. Verse 32, all the believers are together and one in heart and mind, and we talked about that. But then no one claimed any of his possessions was his own. They lived open-handedly with their stuff. They shared everything they had. Then you jump down to verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. And I wonder if this is more than just financial need, but emotional, spiritual, physical. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And you think about our church, and I bragged on you a couple weeks ago about the fact that you're very generous financially as a church. We actually have people that will call the church sometimes and say, what are some of the needs in our body they can give to, whether it's because they were blessed financially, whatever happened. We have people that they do this, what we're talking about in Acts chapter 4, but we also have people that care beyond just finances. And you look at this in Acts chapter 4, they were no needy among them. They were caring for each one other. And you see that even the apostles, they had an awareness of the needs, or else why would you drop all the money at their feet as the authorities in the church to be able to distribute? Because they're aware of the needs that are taking place there. But it goes beyond just financial needs. And Paul talks about this in that jacked up church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 25 through 27, he talks about how we're all part of one body. And that's the church. Oftentimes we think of the church as an organization, but it's a, it's a family. It's an organism as well. It says we're all part of one body. In verse 27, it says when someone suffers, the whole body suffers. No, verse 26. Let me put that up on the screen. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. But if one part rejoices, every part rejoices. And you think about that as our church. We have people that will lose children, and other people ache with them. People that get diagnosed with cancer, and some that are in remission, and some that have lost people come around them, and they care for them in that. Car accidents happen, difficult relationship things happen, and people come around them, they hurt with one another. And our primary way that we do that as a church is through our community groups. And I'll share with you that we were just sharing in our group last week, when I'll tell you, when people, when I've been hurt over the last five years, different things, my wife or I, or our kids, difficult things have happened. The people that have been there for us are people we live in community with. 
And we were talking about with our community group last week, we have something special that's happened in our group. And we don't know how to nail it down, what a formula would be for it. And one person said, I think one of the things is that we have what we have because of the transparency we have with one another. That we can care for one another because we actually know one another. It's hard to be devoted to someone when you don't even know that person. And, and that's what you end up seeing happen. If you're not in a group, you need to be in a group. That's how we primarily care for one another. But it's not just when people suffer, it's when they rejoice too. And we rejoice over things that take place in people's lives. When somebody crosses that line of faith, they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. We rejoice as a body together. All of heaven does. We get to join in on it. We rejoice when somebody takes the next step in a faith journey. When somebody gets out of a situation that we know is not a healthy situation for them, we rejoice with them in those steps of life change that take place. And we suffer with them when there's difficult times that happen. We're trying to grow in this as a church, too. Our primary way that we do it is through community groups. We also have recently started a ministry that's a mentorship ministry for people that want to grow, take the next step in their faith journey. If you're interested in that, you can mark it on your connection card today. Uh, We've got a class that's coming out pretty soon that's going to be for new believers. We know that people have been trusting Christ, and over the last six months, year, if you've trusted Christ, we would love for you to get involved in this new believers class to really teach you some of the basics of walking with Jesus and what it looks like to live in community, what it looks like to have a prayer life, and what it looks like to spend time alone with Jesus and grow in that grace. And then we're also trying to do other stuff as a church that's organic. We try to have people available for those who have burdens, a response team. And one of the things we're about to do this month is we're going to start what we call renewable church membership. It's an effort for us as a church trying to continue and increase our care for one another. And what it is is that when you become a member of the church, a lot of times what happens is after you've been a member for like two or three years, you forget what in the world did I even sign. You know, I just hang out with these people, I kind of like them, and you forget what's even happening there. And so what we're doing is we're going to renew our commitment with each other on an annual basis. Kind of like a, a married couple will renew their vows with one another. It's reminding you, are, are you still here? Are you still committed to this? Yep, yep, we're still on board with this. But we're also going to come alongside that and do a, a spiritual survey. We evaluate our own hearts. It's an opportunity for us to ask questions so we can ask ourselves, do I love Jesus more now than I did six months ago, than I did a year ago? Socrates, secular philosopher, said the unexamined life is not worth living. It's kind of like a, a doctor checkup that you go for an annual physical It's a time for you to ask yourself, how am I doing spiritually? Am I really committed to connecting people to Jesus for life change? Is that why I exist? And how does that look? Maybe I'm in a dry place spiritually, so what do I do about that? And it gives us as leadership and staff members opportunity to come alongside you. We get to see things that will happen as a church body so we can tell if there's themes that we can address through preaching, through programming, through different stuff in our church body. And here's why. Because we are serious about our mission. We have a serious mission of connecting people to Jesus for life change. We know how many people trust Christ that let us know at least. We know how many people attend. We know what the budget is. It's really hard to know where you're at spiritually. And God loved the world so much that he knew your spiritual need and he gave his son. We figured the least we can do is ask. So how are you doing? Do you love Jesus more now than you did a year ago? If not, why not? How can we help? What are your needs physically? What are your needs financially? What are your needs emotionally? What are your needs spiritually? Because here's the deal. We're on a mission together and we take this mission so seriously that we can't leave soldiers behind. We're in a battle. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against angels of darkness. In this place, and the angels, they want to take you out. Satan, he was the father of lies. He wants to feed you lies and take you out. And we don't want that happening. And so we don't want anybody left behind. We want to have a strong team as we go into this battle. And so we got to check the health of our team. Like I said, we know the attendance. We know the budget. We know about how many people get baptized, how many people trusted Christ. But when you connect somebody to Jesus for life change, it's not just a one-time decision. 
When you're connected to Jesus for life change, it continues to happen as you continue to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And the body becomes stronger and stronger as our light shines brighter, as we sang earlier. Our light shines brighter as we become the city on the hill so the city can actually be redeemed for Jesus Christ and his glory and the fame of his name. That's our desire, and we love God so much, we take it seriously, that we want to love one another well, and we want our body to be healthy, because we want to reach a lost world, and we want to be as strong as possible as a team in doing so. I want to enroll in this Renewable Church membership is just another way. It's not really, it's not that there's a problem. We just look at how church membership's been done, and we think that it could be done better. And if you have questions about it, we're going to hand out an FAQ sheet as you leave today. But let me tell you something. As you think about this message today, there's certain action steps for each one of us, and each one of us have different ones. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you your action step. Do not. Don't even ask to join our church. Don't go join another church. Because what you need is not church membership. And if somehow you slipped through the cracks and became a member of a church, I would hate it for you to get some false idea that now God loves you more or you're closer to him. If you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, then what you need is salvation. There's no other name on earth by which men shall be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. If you call upon his name, he promises he will save you. And he saves you from your sins. He cleanses you from your sins. What you have to do, though, is realize your sinfulness and your need for a Savior. The wages of sin is death. What you earn because you're a sinner, and we're all sinners, I'm a sinner. What I earn is separation from God. But he offers a gift through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross. When he rose from the dead, he defeated death, and he offers you life. And what you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our number one goal for you. Our only concern for you at this moment is that you would trust Jesus Christ, not join some church or any other organization for that matter, but that you'd enter into a relationship with Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to trust Christ as your Savior. We'll have people down here on the response team that would love to talk with you about that if you have questions, or you can just sit in your seat and pray, God, I acknowledge my sin, and I believe upon your son Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I surrender my life to you because he gave his life for me. Now, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're not committed to a local church, you need to commit. That is your next step. Whether it's this church or whether it's Providence or Hope or whatever church you pick in this city, you need to pick a local church, a manifestation you're devoted to, not just some universal concept of people. You're devoted to real tangible people. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And so that is your next step. Now, some of you, members of a church, maybe this church, maybe watching online, maybe you're a guest from another church, and I'm not saying this because of any situation, okay? I don't have a situation of mine. I don't even have a person of mine. But you haven't been fighting for the unity of the church. And you need to fight for that. And so that means gossip gets shut down. If you're gossiping, repent. If somebody else has been gossiping to you, you tell them you don't want to listen to that stuff anymore. You stop. You've been divisive about somebody else, cut it out. You know somebody that's divisive, Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Warn them, they do it again, you're done with them. It is the most loving thing you could do for them because they don't realize what they're doing to the body of Christ. And it might not be until they get into isolation and they're separated from the body of Christ because they've been kicked out of enough places that they start to realize what they're actually doing. So you need to care for them in that way and love them in that way. Sometimes love is tough. One of the most gracious things you can do is come to grips with your own sinfulness so that you walk in humility and gentleness when you deal with sin in the body. And so many of us have different steps we need to take. Some of us is repentance, some of us is forgiveness, some of us is reconciliation. For many of us, it's just a recommitment of where we're at. That's where we're at as a church. We love you. We care for you. We want to be unified. We want to be a community of grace. We want to be a community of care. And if you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. The very reason why we gather is to make his name known. 
you say somehow in some beautiful way that when we become one, that people see that your son Jesus was sent for them. And Father God, will you please make that known through this body? I pray for us as Southbridge Fellowship, you'd make us a strong team of people that could have a, an incredible impact in this city for you and ultimately around the world for your glory. And Father God, I pray for those here who need to repent, that Father God, that they would turn to you and walk in a new direction, experience a new kind of community, have a new kind of boldness for your glory. Father God, I pray for those of us who have been ununified, whether it's even with a family member, somebody might live in another state, that you'd reconcile relationships. For those that need to turn to you from an addiction, an idol, God, I pray that you'd smash that idol and they would turn to you. For any that need to trust your son, Jesus, God, we welcome them into your family today. And I pray they would place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, right now. God, I pray for us as a church that you keep us unified. Keep us aware of our own sinfulness, that we'd never become proud. And Father God, keep us caring for one another as a natural expression of our love for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Be blessed. We love you. Have a great week this week. Have a great talk in your community group too. See you.